And um, so I'm going to uh, accuse you, Congressman Cicilline, of not having the most interesting congressional race going on in the state of Rhode Island. How do you respond to the fact that um, this is not the most interesting congressional race and District 2 is taking more more, uh, shall we say, audience time than anything else. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, look, I, you know, every two years it's a very interesting and important election to me because I, I'm running for re-election. Um, I'm, I, it gives me an opportunity to make sure folks know what I've been working on and the things I've been doing for the district. Um, and I hope to have the opportunity to serve the constituents of the first congressional district for two more years. But I think when there's an open seat, which there is in the second congressional district, that always attracts a lot more candidates, a lot more interest, but um, I hope people recognize both of these uh, seats are important to Rhode Island and elections are important. I take it really seriously. And we'll let them battle it out and see, uh, uh, in this case here, since there's two guys, um, may the better man win, as they say. We're going to be uh, talking with uh, Congressman. Uh, he, he's uh, running for re-election. Yes, he, he's on the ballot and you'll have an opportunity to vote uh, David Cicilline back in. In uh, November, if uh, you uh, think that he's done a good job, and we're going to talk about uh, the kinds of things that the congressman um, works on. We're going to talk about some of the issues uh, that are out there, and then some of the things that Congressman Cicilline actually works on in the United States Congress. And I uh, mentioned to him I'd like to start globally in uh, the war in Ukraine, and um, I watch a little bit of... uh, television news out of uh, France and out of Germany and out of uh, the BBC and and I, I watch that every night um, uh, at home 20 minutes newscast and they have been concentrating on the Ukraine and they're, they're talking about how the how that war and and how other countries like the European Union like the United States and and allies of Ukraine have been have been sending financial resources and military resources into Ukraine, and then of course they're struggling with their with their heating uh, issues. And so, my question uh, when we talk about Ukraine is: um, when you were here the the last time, uh, six or eight weeks ago, um, pretty strong support for the Ukraine. Can we sustain that support uh, as it uh, drains, um, you know, the uh, the oil and the gas and the dollars and the euros and so forth? Uh, Will we be uh, keeping our position the same uh, with, uh, with the uh, Ukrainian government? First of all, thank you for having me back. And obviously the war in Ukraine is a source of tremendous um, concern for, I think, everyone in the world who are watching these images of civilian attacks and attacks on hospitals and playgrounds and schools. Um, and this is an important fight. It's not really uh, a fight just of the Ukrainian people. But I think it's really uh, a fight that we have to support because it's about the right of a country to set its own boundaries and have a sovereign uh, territorial borders and to not allow another country to uh, redraw the lines of that country by force. I mean, we've had peace and stability in Europe uh, as a result of NATO and after having fought the Second World War. Um, and for a pretty long time, that has been the peace that was maintained. And then you have Vladimir Putin, who uh, engages in this brutal invasion of Ukraine in an effort just to take a country by force. Not a NATO country, but I think everyone recognizes that what happens in Ukraine will set 
uh, an example to the world. If we allow Vladimir Putin to get away with this in Ukraine, uh, who knows where he'll go next. And what I think has been remarkable, and I noticed this when I visited Ukraine, when I visited the uh, Polish border of Ukraine, the determination of the Ukrainian people, their willingness to literally fight and die for their country and for their democracy. And interestingly, these were people who are not in the military but are just joining neighborhood military groups because they've tasted freedom. They know what it is to live in a democracy and they don't want to go back to being part of the Soviet Union and live under the repressive uh, regime of Vladimir Putin. So I think so long as the Ukrainians are willing to fight and die for their country, it's important for democracy-loving countries around the world to support them in this fight. And it's going to be difficult. It's already difficult because of the difficult economic times we face, because of the impact on the global price of oil, which is impacting everyone here, particularly since we enacted a ban on Russian oil and the Europeans are doing the same. Because we don't want to finance in any way Vladimir Putin's brutal um, invasion of Ukraine. But this is going to be a difficult, I think the president's been clear, this is not going to be easy for us to continue to support Ukraine. But it's important because this is not just about one country. It's about the right of democracies around the world to resist the forceful takeover of their country. So, you know, yesterday there was an important vote at the UN. We're trying to isolate Russia. It's good to note that they're in the company of, you know, the vote yesterday about condemning the war aggression by Russia. They were joined in their vote, Russia, by North Korea, Syria, Belarus, and Nicaragua. Kind of the rogues gallery. <laughs> so uh, it's not a great place for you, for Russia to be. And I think uh, in the long term, this is going to have proved to be a very harmful expedition of Vladimir Putin. My follow-up question, and then we'll leave uh, Ukraine, is that uh, when you... The Ukraine is like like the, the United States in the sense that they have, there are states. And, um, and some of the states are all Russian. And um, those, um, those particular parts of Ukraine are not as enthusiastic about uh, having, uh, uh, having freedom. Um, they, they seem to like being Russians themselves, speaking Russians. They seem to like it where it is. Is that the key uh, problem in terms of maybe getting a negotiated settlement out of, uh, out of Putin? Or that's not even on the, on the scoreboard? No, I don't. Look, I think you have to be careful about drawing conclusions about the desires of people in some of those territories because of those parts of Ukraine. Because don't forget, they have been the victims of Russian, incessant Russian propaganda. And there have been these sort of so-called votes. They're not really votes about wanting to be part of Russia. There's no question there are deep cultural and linguistic and historical ties between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but I don't know very many people if they have a choice of living with freedom or living in a repressive totalitarian government. You know, you look at the the life in Russia. And I think actually the real, the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin and the reason I think he's actually invaded Ukraine is because the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin is not being in power. Because someone like Vladimir Putin, if they're not in power, they're either executed or imprisoned. What's the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin? A prosperous, thriving democracy on his border. Because the Russians go over and visit family and friends in Ukraine. They see a great economy, all these freedoms. They go back to Russia where they have no freedoms, a cratering economy, a miserable life. And they think, why can't we have that? And so I think what Vladimir Putin's attempting to do is make Ukraine a parking lot, a pile of rubble, so that it won't be such an attractive alternative to his own people and it won't undermine his own uh, hold on, on uh, power in Russia. So... I think this is going to be a long slog, but a really important fight. And I'm really proud that the American people have stood with the Ukrainian people every step of the way. This is uh, on uh, global warming. Uh, one watching, again, those news channels, 
Pakistan has been uh, is devastated by uh, flooding, and um, and the United States uh, has has been a great ally in terms of of relief. But in listening to Pakistani officials, uh, we got all this flooding. We feel it's because of global warming. We are a minor contributor to global warming in the uh, in the you know in the earth uh, earthwise, and uh, we're taking the the brunt of it. And I guess it's countries like Pakistan um, that um, are victims of some of this uh, global warming uh, trends. But uh, on the other hand, they're not uh, participants uh, or contributors. So uh, where does that put you? Yeah, no, it's a very important observation. It's why the president's rejoining of the Paris Climate Accord so the United States could again be part of the leading coalition to respond to the to climate crisis. The gigantic investment we made, maybe the largest ever, in the Inflation Reduction Act to really produce uh, renewable energies and meet our carbon emission reduction standards is really important because you're right, the bigger countries that have the biggest economies are contributing to the emissions of CO2 at a much greater rate than smaller countries that are not as industrialized. But the impact of climate change is being felt all over the world. And in fact, almost every year in the report that's done by our Defense Department, they recognize that one of the greatest national security threats we face is climate change, our ability to respond uh, to the dangers of, uh, of this climate crisis. So it's not an unfair criticism. I think we're now doing our part, um, joining the Paris Climate Accords, investing in the development of renewable energy and resilience. Um, but this is an important priority for not just the United States, but hopefully for everyone in the world because no one is immune for these um, environmental you know, weather disasters as a result of the climate crisis. This is a perspective question as we get a little bit closer to home. United Kingdom, so the Queen dies, and there's 12 days of coverage. I think some of our listeners don't quite understand why we covered it so much here and why it was covered so worldwide. Maybe some people just don't understand our connection to um, the United Kingdom historically and why so many people followed it in the United States, and yet some people were impatient with it. You were not impatient with it and the coverage, were you? No, I mean, look, I, you know, it's always funny to watch how Americans are so interested in the royal family, you know, considering we won the War of Independence right. and we rejected a monarchy. But I think uh, Queen Elizabeth was a kind of a really important historic figure, the way she came uh, to the, the, you know, to becoming Queen of England at such a young age. And I think, you know, so many people, particularly in Europe, but even, you know, around the world, watched her grow from a very young woman to a revered monarch in, through very difficult times, balancing the role of the monarchy and the actual government in the UK. So I think people respected her. Uh, people respected how she protected the monarchy as an institution and, uh, and respected the right of the people of the UK to elect their own leaders. And I don't know that there will ever be another monarch, at least in my lifetime, who engenders that kind of interest. But her longevity, I think, added to that considerably. And But it was funny, even in my own office staff, they were all obsessing about it. I'm like, you guys remember, we don't have a monarch. We won the war. Calm down. But I think people really revered her. Um, because of the kind of life she led. Thank you for uh, taking on that question. <laughs> Moving closer uh, to uh, home, um, uh, the Social Security recipients. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Social Security. 
Um, and you're going to be talking about me when you uh, talk uh, about this uh, question, uh, Congressman. Uh, we'll see or saw. I'm not quite sure if I saw the increase we'll yet. See, yeah. We'll see, yeah. We'll see um, Medicare costs uh, increase by uh, 12 bucks uh, per month in 2022 and increase further in 2023. Let's... Uh, uh, Talk about uh, Medicare as uh, you see the increases and uh, and whether there's a cost offset or not. So I think really importantly, and this is something I worked a lot on since I got to Congress. I'm a an unapologetic, very strong supporter of Medicare and Social Security. Very often, some of the critics of Social Security, especially my Republican colleagues, call them entitlements, as if someone's giving them to our seniors. These are not entitlements. These are earned benefits that people earn after a lifetime of hard work paying into Social Security, and folks are entitled to receive those uh, upon their retirement. I actually think Social Security used to be one leg of a three-legged stool. People had their company pension, they had their lifetime of savings, and they had Social Security. It was supposed to supplement those other two. And uh, the reality is, for lots and lots of seniors, it's the only source of their retirement income because they've used up their savings to help a sick child or help a kid go to the school. They've, um, you know, their company has gotten rid of pensions as so many companies have. And so more and more Rhode Islanders are relying on Social Security. So I'm a big proponent of increasing the benefits of Social Security so you can actually live on them, making sure there's a guaranteed cost of living adjustment every year and paying for it by making sure everyone contributes uh, to Social Security in the same way. Right now, as you know, there's a cap after, a, I think it's 123000 The rest of your income is exempt from Social Security taxes, which is really unfair. If everyone paid Social Security taxes on their income at the same rate, uh, we would be able to fund a permanent COLA every year and increase benefits. So I think that's, we should acknowledge the reality, and I'm going to continue to be a fierce defender of Social Security so long as I'm in Congress. Medicare, same thing. We made a decision as a country that when you reached a certain age or you had a certain kind of disability, that you should have access to quality, affordable health care. And we should be proud of that, and we should be doing everything we can to make sure that it continues forever. The good news is that we just passed, uh, finally, after years of fighting with big pharmaceutical companies, legislation which is going to reduce the cost of prescription drugs for people on Medicare. And, you know, for years, big pharma stopped that, and they are making record profits. We finally broke the back of big pharma. We stood with seniors and we will allow the Department of Human Services to negotiate discounted prices for the first time in, you know, ever, which is great, and we're going to continue that over the next several years, and it's going to bring down costs of prescription drugs considerably. We also put a cap for insulin costs for anyone on Medicare of $35 a month, which is very significant for thousands of Rhode Islanders, and we're also going to cap... The total out-of-pocket expenses for seniors over the course of a year to $2,000, so no one can ever pay more than that. And you can break that up in 12 payments over 12 months. So one of the things that we're trying to do is not only protect Social Security and Medicare, but particularly on Medicare to bring down the costs, especially the cost of prescription drugs, which are such a big driver for so many seniors. So, you know, though we, the Republicans, this is one where there's a big difference. The Republicans have a plan to substantially cut Medicare, to privatize Social Security. Kevin McCarthy, who, if he, the Republicans win, will become the Speaker of the House, wrote a whole book about this. Um, they have a very different view about these two programs, and this is one of those issues where there's a really clear contrast, and I'm proud that I stand on the side of protecting Social Security and Medicare because I know what it means to seniors here in Rhode Island. I meet seniors every day who talk about what 
their lives would be like without both of these programs. I heard Kevin McCarthy talk about that a couple of years ago. But in interviewing uh, Republicans over the years here, that that's something that they say, well, that's something the Democrats are talking about. Uh, we would be crazy. We'd be nuts. It's the most popular social program in the country, Medicare and Social Security. We're not going to cut it in any way, we'd be cutting our own throats. What do you yeah, think? No, you're, you're right. It's very, very popular. But sadly, the Republicans in this election cycle have released a plan that was also by Rick Scott, the Republican senator from Florida, that in fact ends the guarantee of Medicare and Social Security and would require Congress to reauthorize the program every five years, which would be a nightmare. Like seniors would be having to watch and see, like, are they going to authorize it and appropriate money? They, it's a plan that will raise the retirement age, that will cut benefits. It's in writing. The Republican study group in the House has signed on to this plan. So this is real. You know, we go through this every year, and we have the same reaction as you do, Roger. How can they support doing this? These are so wildly popular, but they have a written plan to do it because their donors are demanding that they make these kinds of cuts. So I think it's crazy, too. But I'm we shouldn't be taking that risk. Like, you know, people think, oh, the Republicans won't do it. They've said they're going to do it. They have a written plan to do it. And we should, what was that famous saying? When people show you who they are, believe them. I'm talking to the wrong Republican, yeah. right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> right, that's my problem. Uh, before we uh, leave uh, Social Security, uh, what about uh, increases uh, in uh, Social Security? Uh, can I expect uh, any kind of uh, increase in my Social Security benefits um, soon? Yes. And how um, much? You expect uh, the, the projections are that the increase in Social Security benefits um, will be about 9%, which will be the largest increase in 40 years. The good news and the bad news is, you know, the good news is obviously it's going to help seniors who are struggling with the high cost of everything like, like so many other Rhode Islanders. The bad news is it's a direct response of the high cost of goods. So it's, uh, it's important. Um, I actually um, have legislation that I've co-sponsored that will change the way we calculate the cost of living because right now it's used a calculation which doesn't actually look at what seniors spend money on, which is kind of crazy. But um, because of, of inflation, the, the, the increase this year will be their projections are around 9%, which is very significant. And it will help seniors deal with the high cost of food and gas and virtually every other kind of retail good. So that's good news. But it, we have to continue to do everything we can to drive down costs because not just for seniors but for Rhode Islanders, this is the number one issue. So, the number one issue this week is the increasing price in gasoline. Uh, but when the colder weather comes around, uh, we had, um, let's see if I can remember the emailer. He had 200 gallons of gas delivered to his home, and it was um, $960 for the bill for 200 gallons of uh, heating oil. And he went online and found the least expensive uh, oil uh, deliverer in uh, around. He could have paid more for it. So um, this brings us back to OPEC mm. <laughs> and our relation with uh, Saudi Arabia. So another international mm -hmm. question, but that's unfortunately uh, some of these these uh, questions uh, that uh, have to do with the gas pump on uh, Social Street uh, go back to, uh, to the Middle East and um, did Joe Biden uh, say something wrong to the Saudis, or was this inevitable, uh, the Saudis playing both sides of the fence? Uh, maybe um, if it doesn't make us feel better about paying for high gas prices, explain why. 
Yeah. No, I think it's a really important point. And you're right. There's a direct connection between what we pay at the pump and what's happening internationally, in particular what's happening with the global oil market. And there's no question that OPEC is a, a an oil cartel. They meet and they preset the price by deciding we're going to produce more and drive down the price or we're going to just decide to produce less to drive up the price. That's a cartel. If there were companies doing that inside the United States, they could be uh, sued for antitrust violations. In fact, we have a piece of legislation that would make the, the OPEC countries subject to our antitrust laws in the United States, which I think would be a very good benefit so we could go after them for this price gouging. We had legislation on the floor of the House that we passed. I've been leading this effort to go after the big oil companies that are using this pandemic and the economic crisis as an opportunity just to gouge and jack up prices. Even when the price of a barrel of oil goes down, the price at the pump doesn't. So we have some price gouging here in our own country. But there's no question that the OPEC countries that control the production and distribution of oil have enormous power in the marketplace. And you add the complication of the Ukraine war where the Europeans and the U.S. say we're not going to buy any more Russian oil, which is, I think, the right decision. For us, it's a very small amount. For the Europeans, it's a bigger amount. That, of course, has an impact on the price of oil. So these are all related. I think what it calls for is going after price gouging, going after OPEC and trying to prevent them from engaging this kind of cartel behavior, and then finally investing and increasing our investment in the production of uh, oil here in our own country. There are tens of there are over 9,000 leases that have been issued that are not being used here in the U.S. I think that Biden administration is trying to make companies either use those leases or you're going to lose them so that they're not sitting on opportunities for more production. But I also think with the investments we made in renewable energy, the one price that's not going up is obviously solar, wind, some of the renewables. So I think the argument is we've got to accelerate our investment in new energy sources. We've got to go after the price gouging. We have to go after OPEC. And we have to do all that we can to, to bring these prices down. Finally, we added additional money to the LIHEAP program, um, which will help you know middle-income and low-income folks get through the winter with increased energy costs temporarily. That's not a permanent solution, but at least it will help people deal with some of the high costs over the over this winter. If anyone who's listening is in that situation and needs help as winter approaches, reach out to my office and we'll tell you how to access those funds. My office number is 729-5600. So after Joe Biden uh, took the White House uh, and he made some energy changes, uh, you willing to concede that uh, maybe some of them were a little bit too premature or did he do the right thing right from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I've always believed we have to make a transition from fossil fuels and I, I think the president believes the same. I don't think anyone believes you can just like wake up tomorrow and say, we're not going to have fossil fuels anymore, despite how damaging it is to the economy. We have to make a transition and so I think you know, making sure the oil leases that are out there are used up, making sure that, you know, we're doing all that we can to increase production and at the same time investing very seriously in the development of new energy sources. I mean, we're just so far behind in that fight for renewable energy. And, you know, lots of countries around the world have been investing in it much longer than us. We're finally catching up, I think. But this is kind of an all hands or all of the above. I mean, I think we have to be doing a lot more 
uh, to secure our energy independence. I think we'd be in a very different position if it weren't for the war in Ukraine and the instability in the oil markets. We would probably be able to see some reductions, but this is going to be a longer problem to solve because of that and because of the really the boldness of the Saudis who, despite a presidential visit, um, decided they're going to just lower production to, you know, countries act in their own interest. The Saudis want to make as much money to, you know, fund their own activities. And by lowering production, they're going to raise the price of oil, which is going to bring them tremendous benefit. And by the way, help Vladimir Putin, who's financing his war on, on the sale of, uh, of Russian oil. So all these things are related. They're, you know, they're not simple relationships. The Saudis are an important partner in a lot of security work and uh, in the region. So it's always complicated. Same with Pakistan. They engage in some behavior that is very problematic, and yet on some issues, they're really important allies. So it's like friends. There they're, they're are good parts of their personality and bad, and sometimes you have to deal with them. Uh, but I think, as the president said only yesterday, it is time to reassess the U.S.-Saudi relationship as a result of their conduct in a very significant way. Well, there's something that I agree with Joe on. Yeah. <laughs> Me <sure>. too. <laughs> All right. uh, this is the Upfront Program. We're going to take a break uh, because we wanted to protect the health of David Cicilline. He is sipping on coffee he purchased up the street. And I'm uh, sipping on the... He didn't want any of my in-studio uh, coffee. Maybe yes. next time. Yes, I've tried that once and <laughs> one, one, one only time. One All right. Time. Okay, so um, uh, we're going to break. Uh, he can uh, look at his notes and we can chat a little bit off microphone. But right now, we have a few ads to take care of. And then we'll be back with more uh, more questions. Um, lots of more questions. Fall is arriving at Gray Tree Boutique, 1725 Menden Road, Cumberland. Graytree carries a unique array of clothing, jewelry, home decor, food, bath, beauty gifts, and more. Take a look at the selection of homemade pieces for the fall season by local creators, as well as items from around the world. Graytree curates a wide variety of pieces from the USA, Europe, Canada, and Asia. Plus, tune in every Thursday night at 6 p.m. for Graytree Boutique's weekly live Facebook sale, featuring new arrivals, giveaways, and a fun night of shopping from the comfort of home. It's now even easier to shop their live sales with their new app. Download it for free in the App Store or Google Play Store if you have an Android. Just type in Gray Tree Boutique. Shop all of their previous live sales on the app or browse their newest arrivals. It has amazing features like shopping replays, waitlisting out-of-stock merchandise so you'll be notified of a restock, and so much more. Renee, Katie, and Jill invite you to visit soon. Gray Tree Boutique, 1725 Menden Road, Cumberland. Stop in our store, shop online at shopgraytree.com, and download their new free app. Or you can just simply give us a call, 401-333-3700. The name of the business, All Tech Painting. We've been serving the Massachusetts and Rhode Island community with top-notch painting services. We want to be your one-stop shop for interior and exterior painting, plastering, drywall repair, power washing, wood staining, and so much more. And we do all this with the promise of 100% satisfaction using quality materials and the finest product you can be proud of. That's the kind of company we are. Have any questions or want to quote? Call 401-378-7765. All Tech Paint of North Attleboro, ready to serve you at 401-378-7765. Skilled craftsmen, ready to work for you. Made Believable. 
the company where we love to clean so you don't have to, is now hiring. We're the best place to work with paid time off and gas reimbursement, of course. You'll be a certified professional cleaner. Call Crystal at 401-309-7440 and find out why we are the best place in town to work. We are a Cumberland-based business. We are fully insured and bonded, too. And if you want our services, remember, we bring our own supplies and equipment. Our cleaning professionals are thoroughly screened, background checked, and trained. And we're pet-friendly, and we can work with any budget, and we'll customize the cleaning for you. Made believable. Again, our number, 401-309-7440. Scott McGee from the Stearns McGee team is ready. Whether you're buying or selling a home or just curious about the local market conditions, Scott would love to offer his services to you. He knows the local community, both as an agent and a neighbor, and can help you guide through the nuances of the current real estate market. So let Scott work hard for you. Your real estate experience will be memorable and enjoyable. You can reach him directly at 401-639-2906. And one more announcement from Grumpy's in South Bellingham, open seven days a week and now open for lunch. Yeah, at noontime every day, we've got a luncheon menu. Stop by and take a look at that. And when we serve you the luncheon menu, we'll also give you a look at our regular menu, which has those overstuffed sandwiches, including the uh, lobster roll and the uh, Swiss and pastrami uh, stuffed sandwich. And of course, our Philly Philly steak and cheese wrap is one of the most popular in the area. And the tenderloin steak sandwich. Come on in and enjoy the great sandwich menu and the great other foods, too. The menu is extensive. We are Grumpies of South Bellingham. And like I said, open today at noontime. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. Congressman David Cicilline is with us. He's running for re-election. Why do you want to do this with all the troubles in the world? There must be some other better job out there, No, there's no better job. And when you have the opportunity to help people, either in Mm -hmm. individual cases or fight for laws that you know are going to improve people's lives, there's no better feeling. Student loans. um, uh, A lot of people are not happy with uh, forgiving them. I guess what happens is the unhappy people are the people that are not connected to student loans. Like, I don't have a student loan. I don't know anybody who's got one. So it's kind of like a neutral topic uh, to me, uh, except that I'm not getting any money back. Right. Well, actually, there's even worse. I mean, I had student loans from both college and law school. It took me a long time to pay them off. I worked, you know, as a waiter to get through law school and college. A waiter. As a waiter, yeah. Uh Okay. And, um, but, you know, I think if we can, you know, avoid young people having the same crushing debt that I had, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I was disappointed about, and I have a piece of legislation that I think approaches it a little differently, is, um, you know, I have a bill that will provide for interest-free student loans. It's modeled after what they do in Australia. basically allows people to borrow whatever they need to pay for school. But they treat it like a mortgage because an education is a value that you have for your lifetime. And so you can repay it over 25 years. It's de- deducted from your payroll check pre-tax. And the maximum you would have to pay is 7% of your income. But there's no interest. So the government will get all of its money back. The student won't be you know, crushed with debt. It turns out to be about $100, $120 a month for the most you, you, know, you would be required to pay. But it's a guarantee because it comes out of your paycheck. So it's, I think there are good ways to deal with the underlying problem. I think this was a temporary solution for some folks and who are really facing crushing debt in a tough economy. And I think that was a fine idea. But we need to deal with the bigger problem of this, just this 
enormous debt that people have to incur to go to trade school or college or any kind of higher education. David, uh, I don't know if you, do you have any critics out there? Yes. Yeah, all right, so do I. <laughs> and they say that when I have people like you on the program, it's a love fest. And that I don't ask you, like, why are you such a liberal? When, in fact, I really want to know whether you were a good waiter or not. Now, where you were. I was an good. excellent waiter. I worked see, at the Coast Guard House, La France <laughs> Restaurant. I made see a the, good living as a waiter. See, let's say it's a love <laughs> fest. Now, those is that that's too easy a question. I'm sorry. I, I do apologize. We do have some people who uh, do want to talk, but I do uh, uh, talk. And may, maybe it's not won't be a love fest after that. But yep. um, I want to talk about um, one of the reasons uh, that uh, you're here is for people to vote for you uh, in the uh, November 8th election to be congressperson again. And, and so one of the purposes of a congressman is not so much to visit the Ukraine, which is important, but to uh, bring the bacon home for places like Woonsocket, Rhode Island. That's where we are. Now, this is a tough one. What have you done for us lately? Absolutely. So, Im importantly, when we passed the uh, American Rescue Plan to help local communities deal with the economic consequences of COVID-19, uh, it produced uh, $37 million to the city of Woonsocket in coronavirus recovery funds, uh, a little over almost $29 million to the Woonsocket School District so they could open schools safely. Uh, in January, we fought for a uh, grant for the Woonsocket Police Department uh, of $819,000 to help address uh, opioid addiction and treatment. Uh, we worked hard to advocate for uh, a $3.1 million grant through the EDA, the Economic Development Administration, to support uh, acquisition of property and renovations uh, for a new commercial building. Uh, we advocated for $130,000 for the Beacon Charter School. Uh, we uh, advocated for a half a million dollar grant that was successful for the city to do a citywide assessment of the brownfields and then a $650,000 grant uh, for the Dorado property to help get that ready for development, which is going to be really important here in Woonsocket. Uh, we advocated successfully for $187,000 for the Southeast New England uh, Watershed Program that this is a project that will help remove um, uh, re removing travel lanes and converting them into landscape elements that uh, treat stormwater uh, on Truman Drive. Uh, we fought hard for the Woonsocket Fire Department and got over $100,000 for vehicle uh, extraction equipment uh, and a number of other grants uh, that relate to uh, the, through the Department of Health to help our veterans uh, and to help the police and fire department. So part of what I do as a member of Congress is to fight hard to make sure we get more than our fair share to bring federal resources back to the city of Woonsocket that will help improve the quality of life here. And I'm proud of a really strong record of getting that done and working with city officials here to do that. Apparently, I'm a person that does too much time on their hands. So I was researching how many cities and towns we have in the United States, over 12,000 cities and towns. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of places that are in competition for that dough, right? Absolutely. All right. Uh, we uh, have some uh, listeners who, who want to talk to us. I just want to see how I look my notes here and make sure that I uh, cover the, uh, the things I wanted to cover. Uh, these utility bills uh, that, uh, you know, here in Rhode Island, public this is a state issue, not a congressional issue. But uh, I think it does go up to, uh, to the Congress. Because this energy that we get in Rhode Island comes from other places. And so we already um, in, um, well, it started October 1st. The new energy rates go into effect 
in Rhode Island. We have a public utilities administration. They wanted higher. Uh, Rhode Island Energy wanted more. They got a little less, met in the middle, and so on and so forth. Uh, is this a problem for Virginia? Is this a Montana problem? Is this a Vermont problem, or is this just a Rhode Island problem? No, I think it's a problem all across the country, um, and because most of our energy is uh, purchased in global markets, so even if you know, you, there were some regional differences. It's impacted by the price of energy globally. I think, obviously, in the Northeast, we feel it more deeply because of the, the coldness of our winters. You know, in some places, parts of the country, they just don't need heat for as many months as we do here in the Northeast. But, um, look, we have to do everything we can to both provide temporary relief. And I know the governor is using some of the federal money that uh, we brought to Rhode Island to help relieve some of the high cost of energy for this winter. Uh, we have to obviously work with our uh, allies and partners around the world to increase production. We have to try to figure out a way to hold OPEC accountable and prevent them from gouging and, and engaging in the kind of cartel behavior. And we have to continue to invest in new energy sources. So I think it's like all of the above. This is a real issue for Rhode Islanders and, and people all across the country. And it's not only a, a kind of the well-being of people that's at stake here. It's also a national security issue. We need to be able to provide energy to both protect ourselves and take care of the United States during difficult winters without having to rely on others outside the United States. So our coffee might not be so hot, but we did sanitize the microphone and the earphones. So if you put the earphones on, we'll, we'll see if a couple of people have a remark. And let's see, we'll go to you first. What is the issue that you would like the congressman to address? Good morning, Congressman. Thanks Good morning. For coming to my pocket, yep. as always. Um, yeah, I, you know, I kind of have a lighter question too. I didn't really want to ask a policy question. I, I was, I wanted to kind of put you on the spot and ask you, uh, on the other side of the aisle, a Republican. I want you to tell me one person that you like and admire and have uh, similar interests. Maybe somebody who you would go to dinner with. Somebody who you would okay. consider a friend. We get the drift. But hit one condition. One condition. No, it can't be Kinzinger or Cheney. It can't be anyone on the impeachment council. It's got to be another Republican. Okay, fine. So. Oh, that's easy. Thank um, you. Thank you. There's for a lot of people I could answer. I would say the person uh, that I've worked the most with, I talked to him yesterday, actually, is a guy named Ken Buck from Colorado. Very conservative. I mean, one of the most conservative members of the House. We don't agree on just about anything, policy-wise. But he and I have worked very, very closely on the antitrust work, reining in big tech and trying to bring more competition into the digital market and hold these big technology companies accountable. And we've worked uh, in the last Congress and produced a report after a 16-month bipartisan investigation. We generated a 450-page report. We introduced five bills, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats, passed them out of the Judiciary Committee. They were waiting action on the floor. <laughs> really complicated issues. He, Ken and I worked uh, on this very closely. I consider him a friend. He considers me a friend. Uh, I've not only spent time with him, but will continue to do so. That's, that's one example. And again, we joke that there's probably nothing else we agree on other than this one area, and we just stay focused on it because we don't agree on uh, any other issues. Here in Wasaka, generally speaking, the Wasaka City Council uh, many times will pass uh, legislation seven to nothing, showing that there's uh, harmony between the administration and and the council. Does that happen uh, in the Congress of the United States, meaning that even though we're hearing Democrats, Republicans, and so forth, that a lot of stuff goes through bipartisan? 
Absolutely. I mean, the reality is most of the bills that come to the floor are on what they call suspension, which means uh, it's a quicker procedure that requires two-thirds of the House to vote for it, and it's an accelerated process. Most bills that we pass come through suspension, Mm -hmm. which means they're not controversial. They're supported by both sides of the aisle. So that's more often the case than not. The unfortunate thing is that's not the thing that gets coverage because no one cares that Ken Buck and I are working closely together. They like the fight, the story of the battle. You know, that just brings more viewers and listeners. But there's a lot more of that than I think people realize. Yes, it's like uh, the journalism professor who says what's news is not the 20,000 people that made it to work safely. It's the one that didn't. That's right. All right. And uh, let's go to another uh, comment here. Is there something that you would like uh, David Cicilline to address in some way? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I'll be mm-hmm. quick. Go. Uh, two subjects I'll bring up, then I'll hang up and listen sure. to your responses. Mm-hmm. I believe in giving Ukraine all the help we can afford to give them, mm-hmm. maybe a little more, because China bought the only steel mill in Serbia, and they built up their military there. That's halfway across that that continent. Mm-hmm. And if Russia keeps going, they could uh, fuel there and be at our east coast in no time at all. On the north, uh, on the west coast, you have China and North Korea testing their missiles. And I... I really think about it because I grew up here and I have a cousin who lives here now. Sure. During World War Two, his uncle uh, was caught helping right. a, a downed American pilot and he was tortured to death. Anyways, and my second comment is in the September 16th issue of the Woonsocket Call, uh-huh. there's an article that says in 1987, two countries signed the Montreal Protocol, a treaty designed to save the Earth's ozone layer by calling our nations to reduce emissions of harmful chemicals by the year 2000. Do you know if they've been doing that and what the 20 countries, you probably have to look it up, okay. what the 20 countries Two are great questions. and what they're doing. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. So she uh, she brought up uh, China, first of all. I mean, the, the question started with Ukraine. Uh, then it goes to China. Then it goes to North Korea. Then it goes to missiles over, uh, over Japan. And so tell this caller, who's one of our regular callers and up to date on international affairs, What's going on with all those issues? It's kind of like a whole bunch of questions in one. No, I I think the caller raises a really important point, which I should have probably made when I first discussed this with you, is that is, you know, other countries are not just sitting around while we advance our own interests in supporting Ukraine in their fight for democracy. Other countries are positioning themselves in ways that advantage them. And so, and this is what I think is so important about American leadership in the world. You know, when we retreat from our leadership position, whether it's on climate or on peace and democracy or uh, economic development initiatives, other countries are filling the void. And, and countries are who have different interests than we do are engaging in these uh, discussions. And, you know, if people can't have a relationship with the United States, they try to figure out how do we navigate a relationship with the Chinese or with the Russians or with the Saudis or whatever. So it's the caller's point is an important one. They, these are all related. And the United States has to do all that it can to support Ukraine because... Not only it's morally the right thing to do, it's in our national security interest because there's a lot of evidence that shows 
there is more peace and stability around the world where democracies exist and strong economies exist. So this is in our self-interest as well as the interest of the Ukrainian people. In terms of the uh, Montreal Protocol, I'm not familiar with all the countries that are in it, but I'm happy to look into it. And if Raj will give me your number, I'm happy to follow up with you directly. Okay, I think I have her email address. Okay. Uh, so his party printed billions of dollars in free paper money and created an inflation that we are now living on. So let's talk about all the spending, um, whether it's uh, a problem in Puerto Rico. we got money for them, uh, money for Florida, uh, for uh, the hurricane. We've got money for Ukraine. Uh, we've got money for student law. Where, where's it all coming from? Yeah. Well, the good news is the Inflation Reduction Act is fully paid for. And where it's coming from is making sure... The biggest corporations uh, pay their fair share. We have mega corporations in this country who avoid paying any taxes, which I think is unfair. So it makes sure that, that everyone pays their fair share in terms of the biggest corporations in this country and the wealthiest Americans. You know, anyone who makes over $400,000 will um, be responsible for, for making sure they pay their fair share. No tax increase, obviously, for anybody under that. So it's fully paid for. But look, I think most economists that I've read at least – uh, attribute the inflation, which is a global problem, you know, the inflation exists in countries that didn't spend any money during COVID or very little, just in some ways, some oftentimes worse than the United States. So the real cause of, the, of inflation has been this gigantic interruption in the supply chain and the shutting down of the economy. And now the economy reopening, demand going up and production lagging behind. That's just a fact. And so did, did some spending contribute to it? I'm sure the answer to that is yes. But the principal cause of inflation has been this huge interruption in the supply chain as a result of a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. And I know from talking to Rhode Islanders and people all across the district that they were really hurting during this pandemic. They either were out of work, their schools were closed, small businesses were struggling to survive. And I think the work we did to help cities and towns, to help small businesses, to help families get through it was absolutely essential. And, um, you know, I think, again, when the supply chains are fully restored and the economy is fully reopened around the world, we're going to obviously see this, you know, get under control. And we have to do everything we can to lower costs in the interim. But, um, you know, I think this was a pandemic that brought incredible harm to the economy, incredible harm to the public health. And it required the federal government to act decisively. And as I said, there are lots of countries around the world that didn't spend anywhere near what the United States spent. And they either have the same or worse inflation. Inflation in Europe is much, much worse. They didn't spend anywhere near what the, what the U.S. spent. So I don't know that it's a direct causation. Did it add something to it? I'm sure the answer to that is yes. I think the real answer is the supply chain problem. And I think the president has done a lot to address that. We've made real investments to make sure our supply chain is resilient, where one of the reasons I'm in Woonsocket today is to visit a manufacturer, because I think one of the answers to this is making more things in the United States. Rhode Island has a strong history of manufacturing. It's one of the issues I've worked on a lot. Uh, one of the investments we make in the inflation reduction legislation is to really help build resilient supply chains in the U.S. so we don't have to worry about getting goods shipped overseas that are being manufactured in other countries. A couple of uh, remarks here. Number one, uh, have you ever heard of Donald Trump? Uh, yes, I think I can answer that for you. Have you ever heard of him? I have heard yeah, okay. of him. Okay, so will he be back uh, as a working candidate in the next presidential election? That's question number one. Another emailer. You can think about that one. <laughs> He's you. giving it some very hard thought right now. Uh, the congressman said he visited Ukraine. Uh, has he visited the borders? And what does he think of the uh, immigrant situation uh, coming through from Mexico? Okay, you're next. 
Uh, yes, I have heard of Donald Trump. I The one thing I know is uh, it is impossible to predict the behavior of the former president, so I have no idea whether he will be a candidate. Uh, again, I, you know, that's a judgment he'll obviously make. Um, I have been to both the border of Ukraine and to our border. Um, you know, I have always been very clear that I think we have a broken immigration system. We have a responsibility to fix it. I think we have had some success in prior Congresses where it got passed in one chamber but not the other uh, to, to fix our broken immigration system. And I think we have to make sure that what's happening at the border uh, is done in, you know, in an orderly, safe, efficient way uh, that reflects our values as a country. Uh, you know, at one time the evangelical community in, in America referred to our asylum and refugee system as the crown jewel of America's humanitarian effort. I think that's true, um, but it's a system that is in desperate need of repair. And I think the final thing is we've got to pay a lot of attention to the underlying causes. Why are people coming to America? My great-grandparents came here. Why? To build a better life, to you know, build a, you know, a future for themselves and their families. What's happening in the, in the triangle regions that are driving people? Well, we know it's violence, it's gangs, it's lack of opportunity. So making certain that we're doing our part along with our allies around the world to create conditions that will, you know, reduce the demand of people to leave their own country and try to go to a new country. But, you know, America's always been a place that welcomed people fleeing war and violence and famine. We're a country of immigrants, but we want to be sure that it's being done in a safe, orderly, humane way. And these are not easy problems to fix. The one thing I know for sure is, like, taking migrants and, like, shipping them to Martha's Vineyard and using them as a prop, these actual human beings and children, I think is not a serious way to approach this immigration issue. Uh, one thing, if I have to, uh, somebody say, well, well, what do you associate David Cicilline with? Well, in the visits here... You've seemed to say, uh, I want jobs back in America. Do we really have an opportunity to develop uh, any real substantial manufacturing base of uh, microchips and, and really kind of bring the stuff that we depend on China for back to the U.S.? Or are we just, uh, just a high-tech uh, professional, um, uh, shall we say, uh, offering advice to people, but we can't make anything ourselves. No, it's, it's look, we, one of the biggest areas of growth in terms of jobs in this country over the last several years has been in manufacturing. So I think we are seeing a manufacturing renaissance. I'm actually in the northern part of my district because I'm going to be visiting a manufacturing facility today that makes very cool... G-form? Yes, G-form, uh -huh. very cool textiles that are used in the defense sector. But look, we have some of the greatest innovators in the world in the United States. But I think what COVID taught us is we have to make things again in this country because these are good paying jobs, because there are national security and economic implications to relying on production outside of the United States. We need to reform our tax code to incentivize people who create jobs in the U.S., not give them tax benefits that they create jobs outside of the U.S. And I think, you know, COVID showed us what the consequences are of not doing this. So I think there's a lot of renewed interest in American manufacturing. People realize that manufacturing jobs pay on average higher than non-manufacturing jobs. These are good paying jobs. We need to make sure that our schools, particularly our trade and vocational schools, are state of the art. When I was mayor of Providence, we, we built a new state of the art um, uh, vocational school and tech school. 
you know, so that people are training for, for jobs that are available in manufacturing. So, no, I, I'm really bullish on American manufacturing. Rhode Island can continue to play a leadership role. D, you know, manufacturing is in our DNA. We're the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. Rhode Island has always made things, and we need to continue to grow that sector of our economy. We're out of time, and the love fest is almost <laughs> over here. Uh, and so the meet the we've been doing a series uh, called Meet the Candidates. This is part of it, and we only have thirty seconds left. My question, the real tough question: Do you want to get reelected to yes, the Congress? Yes, I would love to have the opportunity to continue to serve yeah? the uh, first congressional district. Oh. It has been the honor of my life, and if I can be helpful in any way, call my office seven two nine. So you want people to vote for you, and please vote right. for me and, on November eighth, November eighth, or, or earlier. Yes. Right. So thank you for being here. Thanks I think we me. got your message. This has been WNRI's Upfront. Presented weekday mornings at 8 a.m. Upfront is a regular public affairs presentation of News Talk 1380, WNRI Woonsocket.